Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, thanks for your word. May it be a light to our path and a lamp to our feet this morning. Send your spirit to open our hearts to you in new ways that we may learn how to exalt your name in our generation here in Boston and to the ends of the earth. Amen. Good morning. It's a whole lot easier to talk about prayer, to read about it, even to write about it, than it is to pray. I mean, when do you find the time? How do you not get distracted by our devices? And how do we know what words even to use? We can struggle at prayer. I do. Pray until you pray. That's what the Puritans advised. Don't quit. Push through that door of unreality, of boredom, of exhaustion. Push through. Because prayer is nothing more than inviting Jesus into our needs. Prayer is to give Jesus permission to use his authority to alleviate our distresses. Prayer is to give that opportunity for Jesus to glorify his name in the midst of our problems. And boy, aren't there a lot of things to pray for. We're a church in transition. We haven't had a permanent senior minister for a while. This summer's been a crazy summer. We've had tons of kids here for Kids Week. We've had many adult learners of English filling our classrooms during the week. We've had missionaries visiting from Africa, from the Middle East. And we've had a, mission, uh, a sermon series on the big ideas of Paul. But this morning, I want to change direction to focus us on prayer. How do we pray? How do we pray constantly or consistently? Maybe you picked up one of the brochures to pray for 50 days for the summer, or signed up online for the senior minister search committee for some time slot. Prayer is foundational. It's foundational in a chaotic and complicated world, whatever our reality. That was the case in Thessalonica. The mission team had gone north in modern, what is now modern-day Turkey, and then unexpectedly, quite a surprise, the Holy Spirit redirects them west, and things didn't turn out too well. The whole town, the whole city erupted in violence, and the mission team had to run for their lives. To my knowledge, none of our mission teams have had quite that experience. Maybe not yet. But Paul gives us in this section of the Bible a perspective on prayer. Not to pray every waking moment, but to pray consistently. And he gives it in three areas, about gratitude in verses 1 to 4, and then in about reference to justice in verses 5 to 10, and then he closes with a reference to power in verses 11 and 12. So we're going to look at some of these reflections on a perspective on how Paul prays. Prayer is our foundation in a chaotic and complicated world, whatever our background, whatever our situation. Well, Paul begins his prayer by saying, I, we must always constantly give thanks for you, brothers, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast we boast about your faith and perseverance in all the persecutions and trials that you are suffering. 
For Paul knew that this was not some ego trip. This was not some work of his mother church putting their brand on another part of creation. It wasn't a sort of franchise from Antioch. It was God doing his work. And he gave thanks for the work that God was apparently doing. I had the opportunity last month with one of our elders, John Liu, to travel to Central Asia. It was a great privilege. We were visiting Christian leaders in countries that are under dictatorships, where to be a Christian is not illegal necessarily, but highly regimented and controlled. And one of the leaders we met, I'll call her Fatima, was a woman in her late 40s. And she told us how she came to know Christ as a college kid about 25 years ago. She came from a Muslim background, and there was a Russian missionary who came in and led her to Christ with several others, and then at night baptized them in a canal to avoid attention. Well, the missionary came to Fatima and her college friends and said, I've got to go back to Russia now. And Fatima's like, what? You're going to leave us? What should we do? The missionary said, read five chapters of the Old Testament, five chapters of the New Testament, and one psalm every day. They're pretty hardcore from Russia. <laughs> and then Fatima was questioning, what do we do about church? And she said, well, Jesus taught that wherever two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. That's church. She said, come together with your friends, read the scriptures, pray, praise God, witness to your family, your friends, your colleagues. You've received from the bread of life. Now share that with those who are starving and hungry in your family and friends. Well, over the 25 years, Fatima had been faithful. In fact, she developed and emerged as a Bible translator, partnering with some of the Park Street missionaries, Jim and Andrea Zavara and their team, to see the completion of a Bible after many decades. And she told us that in her country, when you come to Christ, your family are the first to persecute you and your family are the first to believe. And that everybody, she said, in our country has gone through this fire. So what have we learned from meeting with Fatima, this entrepreneurial, this fearless, creative, pioneering leader? We learned what an amazing story God had done through college kids, through their faithfulness, their growing faith, and how she had no idea on a day-to-day -day basis that her prayers would have such an outsized impact and that God would transform this lady to become a leader in her a church and even affect the spiritual direction of her nation. Well, when Paul says we ought always to pray with thanks for you, he focuses on their faith and he focuses on their love. We, when we pray, often thank God for our our family, our health, our home, our church, all good things. But Paul focuses on faith. And the Greek word there really has this internal drive, this organic connection to go deep, that your faith is growing more and more. And then it expands. It's like roots that go down for a tree, but then it expands. The love goes out. It flourishes. It, it brings life and vitality to others as it goes out. And so Paul's prayer inspires us 
to give thanks for new believers, for embattled, for vulnerable believers. And it also invites us to grow deeper ourselves, to ask ourselves the question, am I growing deeper in my faith? Or am I still chewing on manna from yesterday or from the previous week? Are my roots penetrating deeper and deeper as the faith takes hold of me? And what about my love? What about this summer even? Am I, is my love increasing for those who are not like me temperamentally, emotionally, racially, politically, economically, nationally? And is my love growing? Can I say my love for others is deepening? It's a challenge to read Paul's prayers. And it gets more so as he talks about justice in verse 5 to 10. He says, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right and that you will be counted worthy of the kingdom for which you're suffering. God is just and he will pay back trouble those who trouble you. He will give relief to you who are troubled and also to us. This will happen when Jesus returns with blazing fire to his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God, who do not obey the gospel. When we look at our trials and problems, sometimes they can seem to us through a magnifying glass so much bigger than they really are. And yet at other times we can see quite clearly, and they're wrenching, they're infuriating, they're maddening, they're disorienting, they destabilize us, they knock us off balance. We ask questions like, why didn't I get into the grad school I wanted to? Why didn't I get that grant? Or why didn't I get that job? Speaking personally, I can say, why does my mother, why did my mom get cancer and have to be diagnosed a couple weeks ago? Why is she languishing on a bed in London? Why did God not intervene with the gun violence in Texas and Ohio? Why isn't God doing something in Hong Kong to, to bring a peaceful resolution to the conflict and the problems there? There can be this disjuncture between our circumstance and the reality of God. If you've traveled to London and gone around on the subway, you might have noticed as you step out of the train onto the platform, there's a gap, there's a, there's a space. And you'll hear this little this little British voice say, mind the gap. <laughs> and in our own trials, we need to mind the gap. Paul is talking here about a great reversal. He's saying there's no panic in heaven. There is a righteous judge from 2 Timothy 4.8. There is a righteous father and from John 17 who, whose standards of justice and, and uh, righteousness will prevail. Yet when we read these words as modern people, they sound harsh. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It sounds vindictive or spiteful. But this language in the original is not that way. It's judicial, it's legislative, it's what's appropriate. One might read Exodus 1, for example, where a genocidal maniac throws little boy, Hebrew boys into the river Nile. And then in Exodus 14, Yahweh himself throws Pharaoh's army into the Red Sea. You threaten God's people. You threaten God. The focus here is not those who are 
inadvertently ignorant of Jesus Christ. It's those who are willful, deliberately refusing to acknowledge that he is the Lord. They no longer think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So these baby Christians, this new fellowship in Thessalonica has been persecuted. They've participated in the sufferings of Christ. And Paul says elsewhere in Romans 8 that if we suffer with him, we may also be glorified with him. But that's looking to the future. They will be glorified. They will be recognized as worthwhile, as members of his household. But what about now? When we read the scriptures, we see that the judge of the earth will do right in Genesis 19. But what about today? Should we even pray? And if we do pray, how do we pray? How do we pray for the offenders? Do we pray for retribution? Do we pray for punishment? Do we pray for repentance? And how do we pray for the victims, knowing they will one day be vindicated? What does that even mean today? And how do we pray for ourselves in our trials and sufferings? Do we try to justify ourselves and discredit God's justice? As in Job 40, do we, do we try to explain or rationalize things we barely understand, that we don't completely grasp, that we don't have a full hold of? I don't think there are any easy answers. The Psalms are filled with questions about God's justice and his timing. And Paul gives us here a perspective from eternity, as if he's, if it's, as if he's saying, if it's true in eternity that the Lord is just and merciful and all-powerful, it cannot be false that today he is not. If he, he cannot wink at sin, he cannot condone injustice, he cannot turn a blind eye to the violation of his standards and his norms. This is the kind of God that we wrestle with in prayer. Well, Paul closes off with a reference to power in verses 11 and 12. He says, with this in mind, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our Lord and of our God, our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the great things about being in Boston in the summer is you can go on to the common and enjoy some great community theater. You can enjoy Shakespeare in the common. Maybe you've done so. You bring some friends, some blankets, armchairs, some food, and you can sit down and if you, if you like Shakespeare, enjoy some really great, great fun. It's a tremendous vibe there on the common. But right behind the platform, behind the stage, there's this electric generator, this unseen power source. And if you don't have that, you're not going to have any lights, you're not going to have a sound system, you're not going to have a show. And prayer is like that hidden generator, that unseen power source that undergirds everything. And Paul is saying in his prayer that it's by God's power, the power of the Holy Spirit, that will enable them to live lives worthy of their calling, that they have been called to follow Christ. They have been called to glorify Christ, us in him and he in us, 
us and him and he and us, that he reforms our bad habits and gives us good habits, that he takes away the laziness and the busybodiness of our own lives and gives us activity by the Holy Spirit in kingdom work, and that it's all of grace. He begins this chapter with grace, he ends the chapter with grace. It's all of grace. Prayer is our foundation in a chaotic and complicated world. Whatever, whatever our reality. So pray until you pray. Pray until you pray, so you break through that door of boredom or distraction or I don't know what it is. Pray with groans, pray with cries, pray with questions, pray even with words. And pray for missions. Pray for our church that God will guide us in mission. Mission in the city. Mission next, next weekend as we have our picnic. Mission as we engage in our great city of Boston. As we engage with our mission partners who are serving Christ in, under duress. In Turkey where the church is harassed. In Central Asia where Christians are under a dictatorship in family situations in many countries where they just don't understand why have you betrayed us in becoming Christ-like, following Christ. Continue, don't, don't forget about them in September. Continue to pray and pray for our missionaries. Paul is unabashed at the end of his letter. He says, pray for us in chapter three, verse one. Pray for our missionaries. We'll invite some back for our global mission conference in October, but you don't have to wait till then. You can get a list of our missionaries from a mission office or ask an usher how do you get involved with a, a monthly prayer group, a Barnabas group. But pray consistently in life, consistently in trial, consistently on the mountaintop and in the valley. Pray until you pray. Pray for missions. Pray for our missionaries. Pray with gratitude. Pray with a reference to justice. Pray for a reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, teach us. Teach us to pray. Teach us to pray for the will of the Father. Teach us to pray for the power of the Spirit. Teach us to pray for your word to come alive in our lives, for roots to go deep and branches to go wide that you may be glorified in us and we in you, and that we may be prepared and ready for when you return with great power and glory, because we ask it in your name. Amen.